The whiny internet demanded it. Warner Brothers delivered. We finally got to see the Snyder Cut last week, and I'm here with two of my best buds, Doug Lund and Carl Undine, and they're going to help me break down the film today. Doug, what did you think about Justice League? Having seen the Snyder Cut twice now, I can say that there's a lot that I liked and that there's uh, a lot of masturbation going on in this movie. Wait, are we talking about on screen or? (laughs) (laughs) It's metaphorical masturbation, not the good kind. That really leaves me with more questions. (laughs) So, okay, but Doug, honestly, did you like it or did you dislike it? Just yes or no, good or bad? I will say that I liked it. We're going to spend a lot of time comparing it to Whedon's Cut. A lot of people have already done that. And I think that is fundamentally unfair because of the the goals and the bounds that uh, both of these filmmakers had to work within. If I had never seen the original Justice League cut, I would probably like this one a lot better. But I would still say that Whedon delivered a, a feature film, a cinema-worthy film, and Snyder delivered what is probably a deeper experience, and he had the, the leeway to do so. I'm going to go with a, a definite like. I liked this one uh, better than the Whedon cut. In some ways, I liked it better for the exact opposite reason. I think that if we've learned anything about Zack Snyder as a storyteller in the last you know, 10 or 15 years, it's that you give the guy more time and he's going to give you a richer, more full experience. Practically, there's no way that the real Snyder cut could have ever seen light of day in a theater, to your point, because it's, you know, it's four hours long. The beauty of the platform that it was released on, though, is that you can do that. You know, and this this could be cut into episodes if you wanted it to be, or because it's on a platform, you just watch it till you need to stop and you can come back to it and you can work your way through an experience that's that long. So ultimately, maybe just because I'm such a fan of the, the superhero content in the first place, I loved just having more of it. I definitely enjoyed it. I'll, I will definitely watch it again. I also enjoyed it. I definitely will not watch it again, at least not by choice. I thought it had a lot of good moments. I thought the action sequences were a marked improvement, but the soundtrack felt like that dude in college that would come over to your house while you've got a great rap mix going and pull his guitar out and be like, hey guys, you want to hear Comfortably Numb? Like, no, we fucking don't. (laughs) And it starts right from the moment that Aquaman's going back into the ocean and for some reason Enya and her sisters are there singing. And then it cuts into one of the worst country. He's the king of the sea for like 20 (laughs) minutes. That's not even the worst part of it. There's other bad moments. And sometimes it feels like to me that Zack Snyder is directing a music video where he just plugs in his iPhone and plays whatever song he's feeling. It completely took me out of certain sections of the movie. Markedly bad is how I would put it. It was very similar in Aquaman. Both movies had very similar effects on me. A soundtrack should not take you out of a film. It should enhance the film, but it should not be so overly noticeably bad. Songs with lyrics don't necessarily belong in superhero movies, and maybe that's what throws me off. It's funny you say that because one of the things that I immediately liked more in this particular cut was that they got rid of the really, really bizarre version of Everybody Knows that's in the opening credits from the Whedon version. It was so badly placed. You I think wonder- the Everybody Knows was worse than the Aquaman Country song? 
No, no, no. I don't. <laughs> okay. I don't think it was worse. I'm saying that in general, I was happy that everybody knows was gone because I just thought it was such a really bizarre way to open that movie. So let me ask you guys a second question then. Snyder versus Whedon. Like, if you had to choose between the two cuts, which of the two cuts do you like better, Doug? Again, I, I think I like them for different reasons. If if I have to pick one based on what is the superior Justice League cinematic movie, I still have to go with Whedon. I think he found in Snyder's material a good cut. I do think long term that the Snyder cut will probably be more enjoyable. But again, it's playing by a different set of rules. It's really hard for me to say I like one versus the other. But if I was forced to pick, I'm going to go with Whedon. As someone who has spent some time doing editing, I can respect the decisions that he made to end up with what I felt like was a very tight storyline from start to finish. And ultimately, that's what a movie should deliver. And I feel like Whedon's cut did that. I don't necessarily feel the the same about Snyder. It kind of meandered around a little bit more, but it was allowed to do that and largely to its benefit. How about you, Eric? Snyder or Whedon? Snyder. Be fair, I've only seen each movie one time. But I thought the Snyder cut, I liked the action sequences better. I liked how it was more of a team movie. We got to see more of Cyborg and Flash. But again not playing by the same rules because obviously those scenes were filmed. Whedon had to get rid of them. I didn't really feel like cyborg was a real character in the Whedon cut in this movie. You definitely get to see a lot more of cyborg and a lot more of flash. The jokes are hit or miss for me. I thought that there was good jokes in the Whedon cut. I thought there were some pretty decent jokes in the Snyder cut, to be honest with you guys. I like the third act or God, I don't even know. You can't even call it a third act in a four hour movie. Like <laughs> I liked act seven. Yeah. It was <laughs> chapters really, five and six. Really good. Yeah. Chapters five and six, I guess. And then an epilogue that Jesus Christ had no need to be there. And then ended up being basically Dallas. Batman wakes up. Oh shit. JR still alive or whatever. <laughs> Fucking Bobby's still alive. Like I felt like Jared Leto was like, please Zach. I'll give you millions of dollars if you just let me redeem myself so the kids on the internet will stop calling me the worst Joker. Just write me a scene, man. Write me a scene and make me look cool as Joker. I'll still take Snyder, though. Again, I'm not watching either one of them or rushing out to watch either one of them again anytime soon. Well, and Snyder's taking an additional step here where where he's asking his fans to indulge him yet again. One of my big issues with the Snyder cut that we got on HBO Max is that it was presented in the four to three old school CRT ratio. It's a bad thing when like the very first thing you see is to preserve the artist's original vision. We're presenting this in four to three. Why? Why are we doing that? And now he wants to give us a black and white cut. So we're already in four to three. We're going to black and white. Is the next step that we're getting dialogue cards in between a a silent version of this film? When they came out with the black and white version of Logan, I'm the biggest Wolverine fan in the world. I have no desire to watch that movie with black and white blood. Who's the audience for a four hour black and white movie? I think that the Snyder cut was the better of the two, but Doug, very similar to your thoughts on this. I I think that when you look at Whedon, you have to, you have to look at it within the context of the job he was asked to do. Somebody gave him all these parts and said, okay, make these parts work. Here's a little cash, make a few more scenes to kind of glue it together the way you want to glue it together, but here you go. And honestly, I also think that they 
probably put some pressure on Whedon to marvel the thing up a little bit, you know, lighten it up, throw some right. dad jokes in. And so, who better to do that than Whedon? But I think it's fair to say that the Whedon cut was probably birthed of a thousand fathers. There are a ton of people at Warner Brothers that probably were trying to put their 10 cents in into what Joss Whedon should do. And 90% of it was something he had no control over. So he had to work with what he was given to make what he could. It's also important to note that there's a little bit of revisionism going on here. And it's in light of the things that we have learned about Whedon as a person since this movie hit the theaters. And it's easy to look back and point at a number of examples of, you know, this is, of course, what this piece of shit person would do. Well, we didn't know that at the time that we got this movie. And I guess it bothers me when the frame around the conversation today is Snyder's version is better because Snyder's a better person. It's an interesting question, right? Does what you know about the, the the producer of the art ultimately then change your perception of whether or not the art was objectively good? Uh, if you look at Twitter, it clearly is. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Overall, what do you think was the biggest improvement in the Snyder Cut? Regardless of whether you thought the Whedon or Snyder Cut was better, what did you fundamentally like the best or what were like your top couple things that you liked the most in the new version? As much as he really just likes to jerk off all over the camera lens, Zack Snyder knows how to shoot an action sequence. And I thought the action for every character was markedly better in the Snyder Cut. So that would be, for me, the number one improvement. I was a lot more engaged in the action sequences, Batman especially. So it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about, from my perspective, there's a couple of things. I agree with you. Snyder can shoot the hell out of an action sequence. They punched up the speed and the power on like the Wonder Woman scene, kind of her opening Donner-esque scene. I loved that. I thought that was really well done. Steppenwolf is obviously like the number one improvement that was done in this cut. Getting his mouth to sync properly with the CGI. uh, I mean, just think about if you go back and watch the Whedon cut, that immediately turned me off so bad to the quality of what I was looking at that I couldn't get over it no matter what I thought of the rest of the film, I was like, my God, they spent this much money on this thing and you can't even get his mouth to sync up right. It was was just awful. So fixing him strictly from a CGI perspective was critical to making the movie work. Giving you better reasons to invest in the character was tremendously important. Seeing him really as this lackey for dark side and that he's paying penance for mistakes that he made in the past. And that's why he's perhaps even irrationally advancing this plot against earth, even though there's a legitimate threat to him winning. I thought they did a really good job of making you believe and understand and be slightly sympathetic to the character. That was huge. I loved the Alfred stuff. I I can't get enough Alfred dialogue scenes. I love Jeremy Irons. Anytime you can have a reason to put him on screen, you should do more of it, right? The reworking of the flash speed sequences. Loved that. And I want to talk to you guys a little bit about each of the characters a little further into this. So I'm not going to say too much about that, but I loved what they did with the flash and cyborg too. You know, cyborg was tremendously underserved in the original one. And one of the things, again, getting into the individual details of the characters, when his father is doing the voiceover and he says to him, you know, you are going to be the most powerful person on this planet. You can create and destroy on a scale like no other living being. 
and you have to choose when and when not to act. It was an interesting perspective because, you know, that's normally the speech reserved for Superman, but it was true in the way that Cyborg was put out there as a character. He was fundamentally able to do more damage or more good than anybody else. So I loved that perspective because it gave him legitimacy. It gave him a reason to be part of the league. That's kind of my, what I liked the most about it list. Uh, Doug, where are you at on this? Oh, you know, it seems like the more that we talk, it feels like a criticism or really an indictment of the limitations of cinema. You know, in in 2021, it's pretty commonly agreed that the best content now is found on television. You start and end with the time conversation, you know, taking that two and a half ish hour limitation off of a work of art opens so many possibilities. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The the deeper character development, I think, is is what strikes everyone. We know how hard it is to get a fully realized, compelling villain in any superhero movie. And Snyder was absolutely able to deliver that with uh, his revised Steppenwolf. I wonder if they didn't blow their whole CGI budget on him because there was a few other scenes in the movie, like literally where you can see the green screen moving behind the action or the awful CGI in that horse chase sequence on uh, Themyscira. It gets bad at points there, but Steppenwolf looks amazing from start to finish. (laughs) I got to say, the CGI thing, it's not Diane Lane. I can't remember the woman that plays Hippolyta. That they shoot her like squarely in the lens, like an old 1950s Western. And she's just like bouncing up and down on the horse. It was objectively the worst. I can't even believe it made the cut. Her name is Connie Nielsen, and that was Nikki's least favorite part of the movie. She said it looks like a fucking shitty 80s commercial. Like that footage that we just got of her galloping looks like a bad perfume commercial. Yeah. So we've obviously jumped to our next topic already. What's the thing that you disliked the most? Eric, I know you have a lot to say on this. (laughs) (laughs) The soundtrack was terrible. Absolutely terrible. I'm not going to harp on that anymore. What else I didn't I like about it? I didn't think the scene at the farmhouse was done as well in the Snyder cut as it was in the Whedon cut. I remember I've only seen it once, but I remember getting the feels when Whedon had that scene. And I want to say in the Whedon cut, Superman even leans down to Lois and said, you called her. And then mom drives up and it's such a better beat in the Whedon version, in my opinion. I didn't do the original Justice League episode with you guys, but I remember you guys talking about that in the episode. And there were two things I thought. I thought, you know, objectively, oh, that was that sucks that they cut that because I loved the whole like he called mom like it was so good. And I remembered how much you liked it. I was certain that was going to make your list of things that you were disappointed about. I thought that it was a good emotional beat in the Whedon cut. I don't think it hurts the Snyder cut at all if you leave that in there. In fact, I think it makes the Snyder cut a little bit better. Doug's exactly correct, though, that the television style of storytelling benefits Snyder. And I'm not trying to bring this into another superhero show, but Falcon and Winter Soldier's opening action sequence. If I went to a movie theater and paid 20 bucks for a ticket, I would have been happy as hell with that action scene. I was like, wow, and I just got that for free on network. And those characters get to breathe. I feel like I know more about Winter Soldier and Falcon in that one episode than I did in all the movies. And the Snyder Cut was the same way. I didn't know Flash. I didn't know Cyborg. I knew Wonder Woman barely. I kind of knew Aquaman because Justice League was pre-Aquaman, wasn't it? It was. 
it's really weird. They they actually did a little bit of retcon in this story that you absolutely could not have done. Like the stuff with Volko, you couldn't have done. It wouldn't have made sense to your audience. Be like, and why is Willem Dafoe here? Had you not seen Aquaman, despite the fact that those events happen after the Justice League movie. So he absolutely leveraged the fact that he could borrow from things that have happened already to make his own version of this glue together a little bit better. I'm kind of stuck on the music because it's it's a conversation I've had with literally everyone that I've talked to this movie about. So Nikki and I were busting out the Shazam trying to figure out who was doing what. And apparently Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds fame is responsible for uh, a lot of Eric's favorite tracks. <laughs> I didn't hate the the note that I made was the Ballad of the Bjorks because uh, <laughs> it worked in the moment, but the moment was extended way too far. Like if, if you had 15 seconds of that kind of lament, it works, but you let it play out for what feels like forever and it doesn't land as hard. And, and we know how important music is to the pacing of a movie. I feel like that's something that's going to stand out as like the biggest misstep you know, and it's funny because it, it was obviously number one on all of our lists. The creepy sirens at the edge of the ocean thing was by far and away the most bizarre, weird, poor use of time, poor use of money, poor use of music. Like, I can't string together enough additional pores to describe how bizarre and terrible I thought that was. For a couple of different reasons. First of all, it's like borderline suggestive of like some kind of weird Aquaman sex cult situation in this village, right? Yeah, she and, smelled his clothes yeah, and that's creepy. That's really the second place I want to go with how weird I thought this whole thing was, right? If you would have shot a scene where Gal Gadot like drops an item of clothing, right? And you know that like the flash kind of was sweet on her, right? If you would have shot a scene where she like dropped a sweater and, you know, went in the other room or something and Ezra Miller had like picked up her sweater and smelled it, the internet would have caught on fire at the outrage over how bizarre and creepy something like that would be. Is it worse than him motorboating her like he did in the Whedon cut? It was accidental though. <laughs> to be fair, that was accidental. <laughs> the accidental motorboating of Wonder Woman. Maybe that's your title right there. But yeah, somehow or another, like it wasn't weird because it was Jason Mimosa. I'm like, ah, no, this is fucking creepy, dude. That absolutely made the list like number one for me on the shit that I thought just like had no place in this movie because it was just bizarre. The other thing, and it actually kind of bleeds into the next question I want to ask you guys. There was a lot of things that I thought were disappointing because they were misses from the Whedon cut. Like I loved at the beginning of the battle sequence in the Whedon cut when Flash admits to Bruce, he's like, I've never been in a battle before. Like, right. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. In just like that Batman way, you know, turns around and just says, save one. And then you'll know. Right? Like, that was like the best version of Batman as a field general giving that private that's getting ready to walk into battle for the first time advice. I hated the fact that some of those little bits of dialogue were missed. And the other one that was huge on the list for me was I have no fucking idea why the Martian Manhunter was in this movie. It made absolutely no sense to me. Like, and it looked really bad. Yeah. It looked better in the epilogue. But the Lois Lane Martian Manhunter transformation completely threw me off because I was like, well, wait a minute. That scene makes sense if it's not Martian Manhunter. 
Right. So, Lois, we need you back in the game. Well, the only way Lois is back in the game and all this is that she's the one that calms down crazy rager uh, Superman, right? But the thing is, Lois was showing up there every day to begin with. So there was a good chance she was already going to be there. So whether she was in the game or not is immaterial. So that whole speech was useless. It accomplished absolutely nothing. And on top of that, then, from a power rating perspective, the Manhunter is power rated up with Wonder Woman and Superman. And so the idea that he sat on his ass and did nothing in the middle of all of this, and then at the end was like, hey, guys, if you ever need any help, give me a shout, was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I, I saw no value in it. Where were you when, when Zod was fucking Metropolis up? And more importantly, where were you when Doomsday took down Superman? Yeah, you are indirectly responsible for hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of deaths, because you were like, mm, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. That's a bear trap that Snyder laid down for himself and then stepped right into. There was no reason to do that. Because so, that's the biggest retcon in the movie, right? Is that we're supposed to assume that is a general Swanick, whom we met in Man of Steel, is that that's been John Johns the whole time. Right. It was John Jones all the time. So this is ridiculous. You wasted time and money advancing this little bit of storyline, which got you nowhere. And if anything, opened a bunch of questions about like the morality of the Martian Manhunter in the first place. So bad, bad, bad move. One other thing I was curious about, and this is kind of in that same category. Do you guys feel like Snyder should have swallowed his pride and used some of the Whedon content? I think it's ridiculous to take the approach that there is absolutely nothing that Whedon contributed to this film. And I think that was an artistic decision they they made when they went to put the Snyder cut together, largely to appease the fans, or maybe it was Snyder's decision. But there were some gems from the Whedon cut that I very much thought would have had a home in this product. Yeah. I completely agree with Doug. Um, yeah. Is there anything that stands out that like, man, I wish they would have kept that in? I liked the after credit scene where Superman is, is racing the Flash. That was fucking fun. It was way better than the epilogue. And I know a lot of people online are big fans of the epilogue because, oh, my God, he brings up killing Robin. He brings up something we read 30 years ago. Holy shit. Did nothing for me at all. I think Deathstroke looks absolutely fucking ridiculous, to be honest with you. I know that's how wow. he looks in the comic book, but I think he looks absolutely ridiculous. That epilogue, as soon as you start with Jesse Eisenberg, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. He's Luther here. This fucking shit show. Like, <laughs> if they should have cut anything out of either movie, it's Jesse Eisenberg's entire fucking performance. Awful, awful Luther. My answer is he he should have included some of the Whedon content. We were joking before we got started, and I showed you guys like the 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 big list I made of of all the things that I wrote down and and captured and dumped into a spreadsheet to do this podcast. And I filtered on like the regret, dislike to see what what really came up in my list, right? And what I noticed was the vast majority of the things that I was like, ah, I really wish I they would have done this differently were all things that I liked in the Whedon cut. It was a lot of the one-liner quippy stuff that I thought was fun and, and helped glue things together. I mentioned the Flash, you know, the Just Save One, I think was critical to bringing Bruce as the field general and introducing the Flash as like the new kid that's that's going into battle for the first time. And I, and I love that. 
the joke with Aquaman where, you know, strongest man is strongest when he stands alone. And Bruce is like, no, that's not at all how that goes. Like, I, I thought that was fantastic. And so all of those little bits of lightheartedness that Whedon's famous for, you know, because he, he was a good dialogue writer. That was where his claim to fame was with Buffy, was he was so good at writing the dialogue. So you don't get to keep the dialogue without keeping the scene. And and for that reason alone, I'm like, yeah, you know, they, they should have swallowed their pride a little bit and kept some of that Whedon content just because there were some really great lines there that they were just too valuable to lose. And it feels like another artifact of got to go with the original vision. I mean, yeah. again, the whole ratio thing aside, why are you doubling down on a storyline that ends up particularly with the the epilogue um but things like during the movie like the very heavy suggestion that lois lane is pregnant why are we setting up storylines for a sequel that we know we're never going to get i mean this was right. an opportunity to draw everything to a, a nice clean finish and he almost got there and then completely 180 and we're going to leave this post-apocalyptic injustice storyline hanging there as a big what if for all of time I was actually pulling a few of my friends outside of the two of you asking, because I was just curious, like from the perspective of people that don't really, really, really know this material, what did you think? And I asked a friend, what do you think? And she said, I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought the epilogue kicked ass. And I said, really, do you have any idea where any of that came from? And she was like, I have absolutely no idea. It was a completely out of left field, but it was really cool. And I said, you know, you realize you're never going to get a movie that explains what any of that actually meant, right? And and she was angry. <laughs> and that's it, though. Like, in a vacuum, if I saw the scene, that dialogue between Batman and the Joker as a, uh, a three-minute clip on YouTube, I'd be like, that was fucking great. That's the Joker that I wanted out of Jared Leto. That right. exchange between the two, it's perfect. It just doesn't have a place in this movie. Right. But Especially it's not at the end of four hours. Right. <laughs> Let's pretend for a moment there's a possibility that you were going to make another movie. Like they were going to go, oh my God, this did so well. We got a billion people signed up for the streaming service. We're going to greenlight another movie. Do you honestly think that Warner Brothers would greenlight that version of another four hours or, or whatever, where you basically are using like the Injustice video game, which was backdoored into making an Injustice comic book? to tell that story and you're mashing dark side into that, which is not part of the original story and you're mashing flashpoint on top of that, because my suspicion is in that epilogue. The reason the Joker still needs to be alive is that they're trying to somehow or another get back to the cosmic treadmill. So the flash can run backward. That's my guess. Something like that is what they were alluding to. But again, like that's me with a PhD and all this guessing and your regular audience is watching this going, what the fuck is going on? Like, it was it's, fun, but it was bizarre. It's interesting. You guys mentioned Injustice. I never even thought about that. I just thought this was some sort of DC, what they call them Elseworlds story, Carl. I, no. I, I, I didn't connect the two at all. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty certain that I'm correct about this. So you had your Injustice video games, right? And they backdoored a digital-only comic book, which essentially set up a storyline that explain to you sort of the context of why now all these superheroes and villains kind of swap up sides and they're all fighting with each other and against each other, explaining why, you know, you've got Aquaman fighting Superman in the game, blah, blah, blah. And it's all based on the idea that the Joker 
finally kills Lois Lane because he thinks it's the funniest joke he can tell. And when Clark finds out, he just tears the Joker's heart out. And it literally stands there in front of Batman and tears his heart out. And that's the beginning of Superman becoming a tyrant. And he and Batman find themselves on opposite sides because he's furious with Batman for toying with this psychotic for so long and not dealing with it. And he's like, we're done and just kills him on the spot. And so that's where all of that comes from is it's backdoored partially from the video game into that Elseworld. And then they take the laziest way ever out of it. If you're going to show us all that, don't make it a dream. Yeah. Whose idea was that? That's almost as bad as having wishes be part of your screenplay. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. It's not that bad. It's close. I said almost. I said almost. Let's not forget that Snyder was involved in that decision as well. Oh, God. Yeah. You want to talk about rolling a flaming turd down a hill? Jesus Christ. But uh, I digress. Follow-up question. Plot holes. What did you guys find yourself scratching your heads the most about whether it was why did he do that or how does this make sense like where did you think that it just like missed the mark entirely in addition to the bleak future um and how it it fits into the story that's being told because i think that's another area that whedon delivered a better product is that we got those flash forwards and they they seem to work but the big question mark for me in the snyder cut is how the fuck does Darkseid forget that Earth is the planet where the anti-life equation is hidden? Yeah, that was number one on my list, too. I don't get this. He shows up. We have sort of the Thor runes scene where he hits the ground and, you know, you've got the, the Omega drawing on the ground, right? And then later, presumably, Steppenwolf goes back to that location and sees that on the ground and is like, holy shit, the anti-life equation's here. He doesn't go back to the equation, though. That's the part where he fingers the mother box. But he does. There not there a scene like it's kind of a, again, sort of a weird dream sequence where Steppenwolf is standing there and he, again, sees on the ground or or maybe they were re-showing the dark side scene. I'm not sure which, but one way or another, you see the, the, the Omega thing drawn on the ground again. And you're like, what the fuck? This doesn't make any sense. He's uh, being shown by, it's basically the mother boxes that are like, uh remember why we're here okay i see that was like hugely confusing to me i absolutely could not figure out like did he fucking forget that it was there and and it could have been fixed so easily it could have been the anger and the violence of this species as it evolved blah 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 it wasn't there originally but now it's here because of like the brutality and the ugliness of this species this is where the analyte equation comes from, but did nothing like that to set it up. It was just, oh yeah, I was here all along. Oops. Which was crazy weird to me. Was there anything else, Doug, that stuck out for you that was just like, what the fuck? Um, lots of individual little things like, why did Silas Stone have to get in the chamber with the cube to heat it up? Why could he have hit the button to start the laser while standing safely <laughs> behind yeah. it? The laser that he'd been testing and alluded to testing multiple times in the movie. I don't think that you stand next to lasers when you test them. I am no scientist. (laughs) I'm not a laser scientist or anything, but (laughs) I'm not even I'm no kind of scientist. And I completely agree with Doug. I don't know enough about the DC universe cinematically, but 
if this takes place before Aquaman, how did Aquaman get the trident? I remember that being a big part of the Aquaman movie. That wasn't the trident from the King of Atlantis. That was his mother's trident that he was fighting with in this one. That's Thank you. Volko, okay. Because that's how he gets the armor, right? Because Volko shows up and the armor is laying on the ground, not the true Aquaman armor, but just the Atlantean armor is laying there. And he gives him his mother's trident at that point. And that's how he gets armored up in the first place. Because that was something that was really not explained in any way in the Whedon cut. Like, how, where, how the fuck did this guy show up in, in a costume, right? So I thought th- it, that was good just for cohesion, right? Just gluing that part of the story back together. One of the things that I thought was, again, truly just a question, not even so much a criticism, but one part I didn't get. There's the point where Ryan Choi, who's, who is the Adam eventually, right? Because they were setting up him to be the next Adam or the first Adam, right? You're talking about prom date guy? Yeah, the prom date guy. Ryan Choi becomes the Adam after Ray Palmer, right? Because remember, he's talking about the nanotech stuff. So they're obviously setting up long term, you know, if there was another movie, the Adam potentially joins the Justice League as well, right? This is where having Carl benefits us every time. <laughs> right. I had no idea. Okay, so when Choi is talking to Silas, he says, do you think Batman was connected to Artifact 6-1982, right? So 6-1982 is, of course, a reference to the first appearance of Cyborg in a comic book. Of course. That's where 6-1982 comes from. I did not understand why Choi asked that question. Like, it didn't... Because the crackheads, their drawing of the uh, parademons looked like Batman. Is that it, do you think? Yes. I thought that drawing looked way more like Batman than a parademon. Yeah, but why would Choi have seen the drawing, though? Because they had people detained in the Star Lab facility there. Oh, okay. Remember that one guy walks up and slaps that drawing up against the the glass while they're on lockdown. That's right. One of the other things I thought I, I'd point out kind of in the plot hole questions section of all this. Do you remember when we talked about in the original scene when the Flash is driving the truck into the Star Labs complex, when they show like his data, like his date of birth, everything on the screen? In the original cut, the date of birth says like 2016. Do you remember us talking about this one night? I remember you brought that up. Yeah. Okay. So I paused it in this version and they fixed it. So I don't know, like, I thought they were going to do some weird flashpoint thing explaining why his birth date was a year before the Justice League events, but they didn't do anything with that. So maybe that's why Snyder fixed it. They changed it from being his birth date to changing it to be like the issue date for the ID or something like that, which I I thought was uh, an interesting detail to go back. Yeah. And that scene was different enough where Whedon obviously must have... uh added some content there. So maybe he added that for reasons unknown. I don't know. One more question. I want to see if you guys can clear this one up and then I'm dying here. If you guys have any plot hole or question stuff as well. One thing that I did not get in the interaction between Desaad and Steppenwolf, which I thought was great, by the way, I was really glad we saw Desaad and it was cool that we saw granny in the background as well. When you saw the, the boom tube open to apocalypse, but he said, Steppenwolf owed a penance of 50,000 worlds to Darkseid before he could come home, right? And he said, your pride was your undoing. Was that to suggest that it was Steppenwolf's fault that 
they failed to conquer the earth the first time and that was his betrayal to dark side is that what you got from it or was like the betrayal something we never really got explained the latter agreed yeah because i didn't really feel like you know we went and we got our asses kicked didn't really qualify as betrayal you might have been pissed but it's not really betrayal so we didn't really find out what steppenwolf actually did to dark side to incur the wrath in the first place so so anything else for you guys like questions plot hole stuff you want to talk about how do you get to your 5,000th birthday and not learn how to make a cup of tea Good question. I love that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I really like that scene, though, where he was like weird on her all of a sudden over making the tea. It, again, any, any more Jeremy Irons is awesome. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you. There's no way that scene makes it into a cinematic cut of Snyder's movie. As an example, that's the kind of stuff that ends up on the floor and stays there for a good reason. Yeah, because you're cutting for time. So, Eric, anything else like big plot holes you want to talk about? Questions? No, not really. I think, honestly, you could sit down with this movie and maybe make it a three-hour movie, and it still have as much impact as I got with the Snyder Cut. I still felt like there was a lot of fluff, a lot of things that could have been a lot shorter. I guess plot holes, though, I've only seen each movie once. I know Carl's keen to talk about the scene in Greece. That scene was necessary because otherwise... Diana is not in a position to be able to explain what was going on with Darkseid and everything else unless she went to the basement of the Parthenon and like saw all this shit for the first time, right? (laughs) So like that was keenly important. But interesting thing, like I was thinking about this from, again, a plot point and, and kind of a plot hole perspective. This is way, way picky. But, you know, in Wonder Woman 84, they talk about how mankind tried to enslave the the Amazons and the Amazons barely escape with their lives to get to Themyscira to be protected by Hera in the first place, right? How the hell did they get away with one of the mother boxes, right? The events of fighting off Steppenwolf and Darkseid in the first place take place prior to the Amazons being on Themyscira. So that was prior to the tribes of man turning against them and trying to enslave them. So the idea that they got out with the mother box in the first place is uh, a bit of a plot hole for me. But that's, like I said, super duper nitpicky. Yeah. And they show them kind of moving them around at one point. And I remember wondering, like, what's that all about? So maybe they were trying to explain that visually and I just didn't pick up on it either. Right. So, yeah, the Parthenon basement thing, I, I, I thought it was really funny. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. But but necessary, you know, you had, again, one of the things that I liked about what Whedon, or excuse me, what Snyder did was a lot of the scenes he did were basically just to glue things together. So in another version of this conversation, we could be like, how the hell did Wonder Woman know about all this stuff in the first place, right? And he fixed that by doing that sequence in the first place. So I thought that was great. I also wanted to ask you guys to kind of run through your main characters here, like the likes and the dislikes because of the distinction between the cuts, between the ads to the characters, just what did you enjoy the most in terms of like what Snyder added? Was there stuff that you were disappointed was cut? Is there anything that sticks out in your mind that you really enjoyed that was different about each of their respective main characters? Let me kick this one off. I loved the added stuff with Batman, but I really dislike the fact that that opening sequence where he has the fight and the conversation with the criminal on the roof when he catches the first parademon, 
I really liked that scene. I thought it was very good. I thought it was a very Batman comic book-ish fight sequence. And it was disappointed that that one got cut. Well, that one couldn't show up in Snyder's version, though, because the whole reason that scene existed was to set up the whole parademons can smell fear. And that is ultimately how they dispose of Steppenwolf. So Steppenwolf got a much more satisfying <laughs> conclusion in, right. in the Snyder cut. So they didn't really need that scene. Um, I agree. Like if we're starting with Batman, all the, the little moments add up to a deeper character. I think the thing that I appreciated the most was he's got such an investment in bringing this team together and like his frustration and like, you know, he strikes out on Arthur. He kind of strikes out on, on Diana to begin with. And then she tells him, go talk to Barry Allen. And the part where he's asking him, I'm putting a team together. And, and Barry says, I'm in. I don't need to hear anything else. And, and Bruce is like, fuck yeah. That moment just like lands better because we've spent more time watching him fail at it. And like, finally, he's got a, a success. I really like that. Right. This is a Bruce Wayne movie, not a Batman movie. I don't even think we get Batman in the actual costume until two and a half hours in. And that's one question I have. It definitely is a long time. Why do you go approach Aquaman as Bruce Wayne? The Flash makes sense because he tricks the Flash, kind of, or he attempts to trick the Flash. Yeah. But why do you approach Aquaman as Bruce Wayne and not as Batman? Batman in the comic scene is a little bit more guarded and intelligent to me. I did like Affleck's performance, though. I've always said that, though, in, in both cuts. I thought yeah. Affleck was good. I thought where Batman saw the most improvement was in the action sequences. I felt like in the Whedon cut, it's Batman running around with a gun. In this one, you still get a little of Batman running around with a gun, but he seems to make a little bit more Batman-esque decisions. So, yeah. yeah, I thought Batman was improved. Cyborg and Flash, obviously, improved. Wonder Woman was hit or miss. I did not like the Wonder Woman musical cues. The operatic. Yeah. No, no, no. They, 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 they use they use that one once. The one I like. They use some operatic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not the. Uh, I like the ones from '84 and from the Wonder Woman movie. The real tribal Wonder Woman music. Yeah. I love. They use that cue one time in the Snyder cut. The other Wonder Woman intros, wasn't a big fan of. I think she suffers a little in the Snyder cut, right. even though she does get that really, like you said. A great action sequence at the beginning. The best thing that was done with Superman that was different in this film, I loved when he goes back to the ship and all of the, you know, the wardrobes open up, right? And there's the red suit, there's the Kryptonian war suit. What's interesting about the Kryptonian war suit is in the original Superman Returns plotline, when he's brought back from the dead after fighting Doomsday, that's how he arrives is in that Kryptonian war suit that then like opens up from the bottom and drops him out onto the floor. And that's your first reveal of Superman back from the dead, right? So I thought it was really cool that they put the callback in that scene with the Kryptonian war suit there. Did Other you notice the Lex Luthor purple suit from no, the 80s superpowers? I've only seen the movie once, but I distinctly remember like, that's Lex Luthor's superpower suit, the purple. Was on the ship? Yeah. Oh, I got to go back and check that. I didn't see that. Correct me um, if I'm wrong. There's definitely a suit that's not Superman. So the other thing that I really, really loved about it is the way they mixed Jor-El and Jonathan Kent in their individual conversations with their son as he's walking through that. 
you're looking for your emotional moment. It's like the great, great line, the they wish to be a good people. They only need the light to show them the way. I mean, that's like one of the greatest Superman bits of dialogue that's ever been written, right? And the callback to that in the two fathers speaking to him as he's getting ready to get to work, the emotional payoff on that was fantastic. How much do you think they had to pay Kevin Costner to get his picture to bob up and down in the water? And was that a reference to Waterworld? (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, funny because you've seen a lot, again, on Twitter, these uh, ancillary characters paying homage to the Snyder Cut. And you have to wonder if part of that isn't because, I mean, everyone got something in this movie. Costner. Yeah. Even Robin Wright shows up for a couple of frames. Everyone who's been involved in the DCEU at some point is going to get some kind of royalty from this product. So, of course, they all love it. There's a million of these people we could go through, but I want to just ask you kind of big picture stuff. Anything that stood out like Aquaman or Flash or or Cyborg, that was necessary, that stole the scene. Anything you guys want to talk about? Who is the Green Lantern of Earth while this is going on? Because we see Green Lantern in the beginning and Themyscira. We see right. a dead Kilowog during the epilogue. So right. Green Lantern is obviously part of this universe. Right. It's Yalangar. Who the hell are is you, that? Are, wait, are you talking about the Green Lantern that's at the beginning? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm asking who is Green Lantern when this movie is going on. Oh, oh okay. I thought you were where, Just like Martian Manhunter, where the hell is GL? There's obviously a Green Lantern during the Themyscira, and there's it, a Green Lantern during the Dream. So Bruce is aware of Green Lantern. It was supposed right. to be Stewart, which I think they should have done. If you're going to have anyone give a cameo like Martian Manhunter did, make it a GL or at least explain why GL is off Earth. That is what yeah. Snyder wanted to do. And Warner Brothers told him, nope, we've got plans for Lantern. And, and Snyder said, all right, I'll go with uh, Manhunter. You think about the way they handled that in Avengers Endgame when Captain Marvel comes back and she says, hey, there's a lot of places that don't have the Avengers. That's why I haven't been here. Right. Suggesting that shit's worse out there and at least you guys can handle what's going on here. They very, very, very much should have done that same kind of thing, either with Manhunter or with the Lantern in, in the same way. That's like, hey, I know things were bad here, but things are real, real bad in this sector. And I knew you guys could handle this. I had to be somewhere else, you know, and that you could have at least morally justified it a little bit. Loved more Alfred. You can't get enough of Jeremy Irons. I thought it was great. The Flash, they tinkered with the idea that he's manipulating space-time. So maybe the running is not real. Like maybe the running is kind of a metaphor and that he's really just blinking around existence. And that's how the Flash is really, quote-unquote, moving at that speed. It has never made sense to me why you take the fastest character in comic books and show him running in slow motion <laughs> never I, I i don't get it i will say like one of the things i really liked about the way that was done was like the stick a hot dog in my pocket scene when he goes to save iris they handle that in such a way that like he's being extremely careful i mean the guy's moving you know thousands of miles an hour if not faster if he just goes over there and picks her up he's gonna break her neck right so he had to be like extremely careful and like work with the inertia of the car and lift her out of it. And it's the classic Superman problem where if Superman catches you and you're falling off of a building, you just fell into a giant piece of steel that's flying at you at 300 miles an hour. Like you're just (laughs) as dead because Superman caught you as you would have been if you hit the concrete, right? 
And so they they sort of addressed that in the way they did that scene with the Flash, where he was actually moving around in the environment very delicately. And I, I liked that. It's hard to do the Flash stuff, too, because of how well Quicksilver was done in the X-Men movies. And you can't just do a repeat of that, even though the hot dog gag kind of was a little bit of how Quicksilver was done in the X-Men movies. So I give them mad props for looking at the speed force a little bit differently because yeah, yeah, you can't just do a repeat of Quicksilver. Well, and plus you had seen, you know, we've all been watching the flash on the WB for, for so many years now that like they have their established version of the way they're doing it. And it's that very traditional, we're running along with you and you know, the winds in our face and we're moving three, 400 miles an hour. Like they, they take you into it, but your experience with the speed is real time. And what they did in this version is, the speed is not real. Like he can walk around once he's in the speed force. And it's basically just like this pocket of time that's different, which I thought was a a better, more interesting way to do it. I mentioned earlier, the cyborg thing. I loved that he was essentially set up as being the most powerful figure in the sense that, yeah, Superman can go break shit, but this guy could set the entire world to war. He could launch all the nukes. He could decommission all the nukes. He could do anything he wants, redistribute wealth, whatever he has to choose now what he's going to do with his power and i liked the idea of that i thought that was very very good to make him relevant in that way because in the comics cyborg doesn't get his powers from the mother box correct he is made of fourth world technology in in the comic book and so again kind of unique interesting you bring that up like kind of weird unique differences one of the things they said is that they're invaders from another universe which they're not in the true dc universe Darkseid and all those guys are real. They're in the known universe. Yeah, there's multiverses, but they are legitimately a part of the universe that you're operating in. The reason they're so powerful is because New Genesis and Apocalypse are next to the Source Wall. And the Source Wall is what essentially is giving them over multiple generations, godlike strength, sustainability, blah, blah, blah. The other thing is that the Mother Boxes, they were basically iPhones. Like everybody on New Genesis, everybody on Apocalypse, it's anybody they just have a mother box and it's like their personal computing device. Keeping in mind, all this stuff was created in like 68 or 69 pre cell phone. It's a cell phone for all its purposes. It's a digital assistant before you had them. It just so happens that this one could open boom tubes and shit. So the idea that they were like these three holy items that there were none other in the universe, that was completely an invention of storytelling in these movies. So yeah. Got a little, little bit of background on Fourth World. Well, since you brought up the tubes, uh, the fact that they were using Yar's Revenge sound effects for his—it <laughs> <laughs> so was. Wow. It awesome. so was. I didn't catch that. That's awesome. It really stands out. It sounds like '80s video game, like zoop whenever he, the tube disappears. That's funny. And I know we're we're running a little long at this point, but I feel like we have to do this. I think we have to talk about the epilogue kind of as its own entity for a minute. And we got a little bit into this earlier in the cast, but ultimately I think you got to talk about it as its own standalone, right? I will say I loved it, but I loved it as a fan with an advanced degree in DC because I knew about the tie-ins between the video games and the other comic books and things and, and what they were going for. But it was fun to see And like you said, maybe all this boiled down to was that on his hands and knees, Jared Leto begged to get into this movie. But even though it was kind of chaos and nonsense with respect to the rest of the story, 
just getting that dialogue between Batman and, and Joker. I, I know, Eric, you're going to like lose it on this one, but I loved it. I was so glad to get that little bit of dialogue. It was needless pandering fan service tacked on to the end of like a three and a half hour, three hour, 45 minute movie. It was like the end of Lord of the Rings, except bad. Like it just kept fucking going. going. And I know everyone loves Jason Todd and I know everyone loves death in the family. And I get that. And everyone wants to see a bad Superman. It just felt like it had no place. And then if the movie would have ended right there, you've got me. But no, Batman wakes up, shitty CGI'd Martian Manhunter comes to his house and says, hey, man, I know you're never going to see me again because this universe is dead, but (laughs) cool. (laughs) It just it felt really tacked on. I understand from a fan's perspective that it's really cool. And I even got some of the really cool parts out of it. It just was unnecessary. And God, anytime you make something a dream sequence. I've yeah. had problems with that. It's lazy writing, in my opinion. I'm no writer, and I couldn't have done better. But someone who gets paid to write certainly should have. <laughs> so the reach-around comment alone wasn't worth it for you? I mean, it was okay. Didn't Batman dropping an F-bomb kind of take you out of it a little bit? Um, I, I cheered when I um, heard Batman say, and I will fucking kill you. Kill you. I, I loved it. I, I, I did, too. And that's that got to be the only reason the movie's an R, right? Um, There were a couple other F-bombs, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. Cyborg yeah, drops Cyborg one. Cyborg fuck the world, and somebody else did, too. Honestly, when you think about it from that perspective, it's kind of amazing that those three F-bombs got you an R rating. I, I didn't feel like the violence was enough to justify an R rating. Is and it decapitation? For- like, does it fall into that category? Maybe. See, my understanding of the way that stuff works, it's not like it's one thing. Like, you have to have a totality of certain kinds of things to get you to a certain rating. There's a couple of clear-cut things. Like, obviously, like, you can't have full frontal nudity and get less than an R rating. Like, that's a hard stop item, right? But, like, you can do PG-13 and throw a fuck in and get away with it. Like As long as it doesn't refer to sex, right? So, with that in mind... I guess it had to be the violence that got it the R rating, but I didn't feel like it was more violent than the Whedon cut. Just more of it because it was longer. I'm going to have to double check, but maybe what Batman actually said is, and I will fuck and kill you. (laughs) That's an R rating right there. Yeah. I liked his fish stick comment too. I thought that was pretty funny. Leto's fish stick comment. He made a couple of fish jokes. (laughs) And that's something else we're going to be getting more of, as I understand it, from what I've read in the black and white cut is more Joker footage. So it's not just a palette decision. It is also more additional content. At some point, you got to put that thing on the shelf and move on, though. You have seen, in effect, the power of hashtags like this is a testament to the power of social media. So did you guys catch that the night before it launched, Ryan Reynolds watched green lantern for the first time all the way through and he live tweeted his way through watching his cut of green lantern and like his third comment was was it too early to get the snyder cut of this one Which, <laughs> that's real good i gotta say all in all i really enjoyed it i am glad it's out into the universe i watched it once purely for pleasure watched it the second time for research for this 
I'm glad it got made. I don't know that I want to see this trend of do-overs moving forward with new superhero films, but this one was just such interesting circumstances because of the trade-off between the two people and, you know, obviously the tragedy in Zack Snyder's family that led to him stepping away in the first place. I liked the idea of getting to see what he did. And I, and I loved that you saw it on that streaming platform because, you know, he could say, fuck the rules. I can make this six hours if I want it to be six hours. It doesn't matter. We've already seen this in a lot of ways with the way people consume things on, on streaming platforms that they'll sit and watch stuff for six hours. Maybe it's a home for people like Snyder that like making these much larger works. You know, maybe that's where we'll see this stuff. And HBO Max has got a couple other things in the hopper. We're supposed to see a Green Lantern series in the near future, right? And I think there's a Gotham series that's supposed to come out as well. And so, you know, we'll see. Maybe this is going to become the new home to the DC properties. Well, we've seen what Marvel is doing, you know, between WandaVision and, and Falcon, and we know we've got a Loki series coming, and I'm brain farting the Archer. <laughs> oh, Hawkeye. Oh, Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Is, is Hawkeye getting his own series? It's yeah. not Hawkeye, though. Well, Jeremy Renner might be in it, but they're going to focus on Kate Bishop. But now Marvel is augmenting their very successful cinematic universe on the small screen to amazing effect from what we've seen so far. I know we're a little off topic on this one, but I think it does merit mention. While I was having lunch on Friday afternoon, I watched it and that opening sequence, that's like one of the best opening action sequences I've seen in five years. Like that was amazing the way they shot that. I was really, really impressed. So I went from being like, meh, maybe I'll watch Falcon Winter Soldier to I absolutely can't wait to see the next episode. So I love the notion of having this high level of quality that's going to be made available to us on the streaming services, whether it's for, you know, Disney for Marvel or HBO Max for DC. So Eric, you want to take us out? Yeah, let's get out of here. We've talked long enough about this, but, you know, to be fair, it's kind of on par with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it just kept going and going and going. Curious to hear y'all's thoughts about the Snyder Cut. I know that we're always very vocal, especially on the BitFace webpage. So let me know what you guys think, because I know a lot of you were a lot bigger fans of it than I was. Doug, Carl, thank you so much for joining us here today in the virtual BitCave. I am Eric G. Hollis, and we are out. Beep.